1: Tune into radical philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, <laughs> knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolff, and Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. <laughs> So glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Jenny Cameron about matriarchy. Welcome to the program.
0: G'day, Beth. Glad to be here. Look,
1: isn't a matriarchal society just replacing men in a patriarchy with women? I mean, what's, what's the difference?
0: Well, uh, a patriarchy technically is called ruled by the fathers. It has been, it's assumed in the past by archaeologists, most of whom have been male, that uh, if you put a woman at the top instead of a man at the top, you've got the same thing. So they assume that a matriarchy is the same thing, just run by a woman. But the difference is that... um, Of course, women are different. Women think differently. Their values are different. They have different life experiences. They have different uh, hopes and expectations and ways of behaving. And what results is very different from what we've now got under, as we live it, under patriarchy. And I tend to, you know, I've written the book Ancient Ways for current days. And in that, I use the term matrifocal. Instead of matriarchy a lot, because of that tendency of people to think it's the same thing but women women are running the show you know under a matrifocal culture women do have important roles and but it's equal and complementary to the men as opposed to the way we've experienced life under patriarchy.
1: what initially got you interested in a matrifocal community was it your travels or was it being a history buff feminism or something else
0: or all all, all of the above or all the
1: above <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes I'm um, I'm a his. my training is in history I once taught history and but it was really being becoming being a feminist so Uh, in the 70s and we all started to re-examine the world we were living in and um, everything about it, the history and the um, current situation and uh, a friend of mine and I travelled, decided to go travelling to see what we could find that indicated a different kind of history and we used a book called, um, I think it was The First Sex by um, Elizabeth Gould Davis in which she lists a many sites of uh goddess and um the places that she thought indicated um the possibility of matriarchies and so we went over to Europe and using this we visited a whole lot of places and um so uh really it was the search the search for a a, a positive uh, history uh, uh, to rewrite the history or re rediscover the history, the history as opposed to the way the ancient past had been taught to us uh, under patriarchy.
1: what was the most exciting or inspirational site that you visited
0: on your travels? A lot of exciting places um, Chatel Hoook in uh, Turkey, for example, um, but one that is abiding for me is um, uh, going to Malta. In Malta there are uh, uh, ruins of a culture that uh, built huge temples, um, big thick walls and big heavy stones in a, a it's before the Neolithic, so it's um, you know stone-based tools um, to create these things. And the shape of the, the temples, for example, is two big thighs and two circles, two big thighs. You go between those to enter, and above there's another two to the sides, which are like breasts, and then there's a small apse, which is like the headspace. And so that's these people saw themselves as, as entering the body of a goddess figure, and in particular a goddess that we could see there. There's a couple of statues which are at least nine foot tall of a very voluminous woman, large hips, large breasts, stomach, rolls of plumpness. She She doesn't have a head, but there's a pin at the top that indicates that they had different heads that they'd put on, Probably according to the season or the ritual or whatever uh, and that's the assumption that um, none, none of the heads have been actually found but uh, it was designed in that way uh, that's uh, that's an incredible place and uh, for their uh, rituals for the dead, they built temples under the ground in in the sense that they dug in uh, into the sandstone and created carved out. Uh, what it looked like the inside of a temple, you know with columns and uprights and bar you know support beams and so forth, which clearly were not needed they 're just aesthetic but uh creates an impression and in there, down through three levels, there were seven thousand bodies found of bones of people who had been interred there, and uh the culture probably had at least two or three other. Uh, of these kinds of places, it's called it's called a hypogeum. In there, they found uh, a goddess figure, or maybe it's a priestess. Again, the same full figure, and she's lying on a bed. Um, this is just a hand size piece, um, lying on a bed, and her her hair's been shaved back a bit from the from the crown, and it's assumed that she's in some kind of trance sleep. That probably the priestesses would go down there and experience a sleep and where they were pondering on a question that had been put or a dilemma or whatever when they woke up, then they'd tell what they would dreamed and or what they seen in their trance um to discuss it with the other priestesses there and the The last thing that's um incredibly fascinating about this place is that um. It's designed so that uh, it resonates. Um, if you, you sing in there, the sound is amplified. It's not well. Is it amplified? It resonates. It resonates through the building and comes to you. Um, so that you, if you if you did sang at any place in the building, or especially a place they call the Holy of Holies, it would be could be heard throughout all three levels. Um, and that must have been felt, you know, very ethereal to be in there. Perhaps you're laying the bones of your ancestor uh, into the hypogeum and somebody's singing or chanting. And and at a certain hertz level, 100-level hertz of reverberation, it's um, proven that that will send a person into trance. So the people who were in there could have been in some kind of Transcendental experience when this sounding singing, chanting whatever they did um was occurring in that um place. it's very ethereal I'm, we were a friend's group of friends so I do account in the book that a group of friends and I were there, and we sang and it was um oh, it just sort of lifted you out of your body It's sort of like very powerful experience, lovely. Mm. so that's that's a highlight for me
1: wow yeah that that sounds absolutely incredible it must have been you know not just sort of visiting the place but the feeling and everything going in there and the atmosphere and
0: yeah connection to the now and connection to the past other women and possibly priests as well as sung there and we're Having the same experience as people three thousand years before us yes that, that this that's a, a sort of high point of, of goddess worship but we've got the the history that of the archaeology now that shows us that uh, um, people were creating goddess figurines, not figurines of gods goddesses uh, at least thirty five thousand bCE There's one that some people dispute, is it or isn't it a person made? It looks like a voluminous goddess, and that's 255,000 years ago. So (laughs) it could be very old, but the one that is absolutely certainly made by humans and of a goddess is 35,000 years ago. So when you think that patriarchy's been around, well, since Christ... That's 2,000 years and the Greeks and Romans you want to add on another, maybe 6,000 years at the most, 4,000, 6,000 years. And we're talking 35,000 for a goddess-based culture, then it's going to be a goddess-based society that operated prior to the current day and will we prior to patriarchy the change over to patriarchy now you talked about societies of peace
1: what is the evidence that those ancient societies were
0: peaceful keith well we can start with the graves that we um, where we find the people buried and like i just described at the hypogeum They're communal burials with no particular pomp and ceremony for anybody in particular. And so um, that's giving us an idea that this is an egalitarian setup. Whereas once you get patriarchy, you get individual graves of men, (laughs) Um, sometimes buried with chariots, which is obviously about the war. Sometimes their horses are killed and buried as well. Sometimes. Their wives are killed and buried in there as well, plus a whole bunch of gold going to waste um, and <laughs> buried. <laughs> um, so that tells us that uh, the patriarchal people uh, are valuing a certain way of being and the are valuing something else, they're valuing community. And then the graves of the men will have weapons And, you know, you can say, obviously, uh, they were hunter-gatherers before they were agricultural, so um, the early humans. So they had spears and they had knives. You know, those things you could say are defensive and if they are attacked by animals, I suppose it was, it would have been. But, uh, for example, they don't have shields. Uh, Patriarchal people have shields because they need to defend against being attacked. And then there's the um, places where they lived. So uh, the very early places, the matrifocal cultures, they didn't have walls around their towns. They um, had no defensive fortifications, for example. When I was talking about the gold before, there's a culture called the Indus Valley Civilization or the Harappan Civilization in Northwest India, uh, which was metrifugal. Um and one commentator said, uh, commented on the lack of golden jewelry and all such things in the graves. Said that this is a, a very communal kind of um, place where, uh, obviously, the the people who were in charge were thought that all that golden jewelry and all of that would be rather wasted. That could be put to public good if it wasn't buried under the in the ground. And they had one city that had walls, um, but it was on a flood plain and it meant that the um, the floods came down at least once a year, but maybe twice, and came up against the walls of the city, which was kind of inconvenient at the time perhaps, but when the floods went away again, all the, the beautiful new silt was left there. Uh, so they just walked out the front of the um, of the city and there were their fields. There was new fields with ready new... Um, beautiful soil um, and they could start cropping straight on their doorsteps.
1: Now you, you've you travelled to other sites since that early trip. What have been the highlights that prompted you to continue this work?
0: I had an experience uh, where I went to um, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis in um, Ephesus and it was once um, a glorious temple that Was three times as big as the Parthenon, and now it's uh, on swampy ground, and you know, off the side of a road. There's hardly anything left of it, and there's one column that has is made up of other remnant columns that were around on the site. But it was basically pillaged and um, ruined by Christians or non-goddess people. They used to steal. Columns. Well, I guess they didn't view it as stealing. They just took them from other temples to help build Christian churches. In Turkey, there's Christian churches that have got columns that were, came from goddess temples. And I was standing there, and there was this, this one column, and I just felt deep sadness at the thought of all the people who had come over a very long period of time thousands of people and all the priestesses. It was all gone, swept away, and uh, nobody knew. I just felt that that was wrong. I had the capacity, being a historian, to put that together in some way. So uh, that was very moving. Another one is um, the, the Callanish Stones in um, the Isle of Lewis off the coast of North Scotland. visited there, it's a fabulous stone stark against the sky and a long avenue of stones leading to it, you know, talking about nine foot stones. Um, And that points straight across the valley to a range of hills, which are known as the Sleeping Beauty. Um, Everybody recognises that this looks like a a woman lying down asleep, the, the configuration. People were recognising that uh, the the earth was female uh, and a goddess and the two were interconnected and that they needed to honour the earth. And we know so well that um, this is something we need to return to in the current day. We need to remember the earth and honour her and start looking after her. You know, the earth looked after us for a long time. It's time we return the favour, really. Yeah,
1: yeah, certainly. Now you've explored a number of current matrifocal societies. What what is it about them that we we need to think about for our future?
0: Yeah. Yes, in the book, I describe a number of. Um, of, of existing cultures, so people think that this is something from the past, and I wanted to make it quite clear to people that um, there's, there are survivors. You know, not all of it got wiped out, and indeed, um, there are pockets of uh, groups of people who operate in this way. Probably the most, the largest, and most successful in the current world is um, the Manangkapow people of West Sumatra. They live in the country, in Penang, in the area of Penang. And um, there's three million of them who live in the heartland, basically cultivating rice, three million of them. And then there's uh, another three million who live in all of the major centers throughout Indonesia and they've—they have always valued education, and as a result, they um, got into all, every kind of profession that there is, and they're also in politics. Um, and they've been able to maintain their uh, matrifocal culture, which they're very proud of, and. Uh, they've embedded in the law some of the, the aspects. And one of the aspects is this it's a, a range of principles, but one of, one of them is that um, all the property that a clan owns is held by the matriarch, the oldest woman or the woman deemed most appropriate to lead the group. And so everything you own belongs to her, except it doesn't belong to her because she can't dispose of it. So she's got custodianship for everybody. She look she's looking after it for everybody, and uh, so that everybody's fairly um, treated and in an equal kind of way. So one of the um, laws that has been made by the Indonesian government, uh, which protects this approach to property. Is that um, any income that is made uh, outside of the, um, the clan base is um, can be held for one generation that's it then it all goes back back to the communal kitty the decision-making is consensual by the consensus they had to decide as I describe in the book, they had to decide whether they wanted a new upgraded international airport. And uh, we're talking about six million people. They made that decision. It took them three months, but they worked out what it was that they wanted to do about that. When I think about that, you know, people say consensus is too long-winded. When you think about how long it takes our governments to do something, three months is not much. You know, some things that that um, our current government promised are still not done since, you know, they had the whole years of their um, period in government to make them happen. Um, so, you know, that's not too outrageous, I don't think. Um, so the other aspects of... Um, focal cultures are that um, a thing called uh, walking marriage. So uh, you may get married to a person, but you don't um, then move out of your family home and live with them. You Your obligations remain with your matrilineal family, both the man and the woman. So the man comes each evening and um, uh, stays with his wife or partner, um, for the evening and then uh a night and they have a their own private room and that's their business and then he slips away early in the morning and he goes back to his matrilineal fam- family where he's got responsibilities for his um his sisters and his aunts and the children who are there he doesn't have responsibility for children that he might be the father of so he the Father might be is usually known especially these days who the father is, but the fathering role is undertaken by the uncles or brothers of the woman in her matrilineal compound so if once the couple decide that they are really you know it's not working anymore it's not the right relationship for them, then they make the decision and they just don't they just break up that's it. There's no acrimony, there's no going to the divorce courts, there's no arguments about the children, there's no arguments about money. It's all irrelevant and the matrifocal culture just says, sex is a good thing, it's healthy, it's an enjoyable and fun thing and that's the place that it has in our culture. It's not about, uh, you know, control and commitment and all of the things that we have, which to some degree are values that the patriarchy needed to have because they needed to know who exactly was their offspring. They've always needed to control women's sexuality for that reason. Really good point, really good system. Do
1: you think that it's possible for our society... To make the necessary shifts to adopt these lessons and endure, um, ensure we survive challenges being presented to us on on our um, in these modern days.
0: My aim in doing the book was I just I wanted to let people know this information because people don't know they don't know about the ancient history and they don't know that there are matrifocal cultures alive and well and living all across. The world today and there are a couple that have started up a couple of villages that women have started up um, in one in um, Kenya in a a village called Umoja um, and then um, a a village called Jinwa in Syria and um, they may or may not know about the matrilineal past but they're creating a world without men. Basically, men aren't allowed into the village. They're not lesbians. Well, maybe they are. But um, they've certainly got families. And um, if there's a, a partner still alive, you know, because in Syria a lot of women are widows, uh, they can visit, but they can't stay there. And um, in Emoja they have to acknowledge the women as the people who are in charge. If they can't do that, then they can't uh, come in and they can certainly can't stay. Um, uh, and there's a, I saw a video where I interviewed some men of the tribe of these women. Um, and they were really against this, these independent women. They said, it's, it's no good, they can't be controlled. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Um, because that 's not what it 's about, actually, so women don 't want to be controlled, they want to have a say, they want to be respected, and actually men do too um, uh, what 's good in a matrifocal culture can be is works for men as well as it works for women and no matrifocal culture became patriarchal from the inside wasn 't the men inside the matriarchy who said oh let 's rebel we don 't like this let 's you know, knock the women off and get in control of everything. That didn't happen. It was all by uh, invading people, patriarchal tribes that invaded. So uh, could could we do it today? Uh, I think it would take a lot of work, but then it's taken about 4,000 years for patriarchy to get embedded. So maybe we can't expect to rush things, but... Um, I think the time is now that we, need, we do need change because these principles that under patriarchy and capitalism um, have not worked well, certainly for women and, um, and really not for anyone. So it's really important to, to discuss the, the options and this is one that's working now for some, some large number of people.
1: Yeah, it's definitely worth exploring. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
0: Thanks for having me, Beth. And uh, anybody who wants to get the book, they could um, contact me. Uh, You can get it online, but it's cheaper if you come through me um, at the Goddess Temple Melbourne. Right, I've been speaking with Jenny Cameron
1: about matriarchy. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.